Right, so today I'm in Edinburgh to meet the artist and academic Pip Thornton. Hello Pip. Hello, nice to meet you. And you, and thanks for having this uh, podcast chat with me. And uh, I believe that you are the Chancellor's Fellow in Geosciences. I'm one of them. Yeah, it's not, it's not an exclusive position. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well it sounds pretty impressive to me. Would you just like to say a little bit about what you do in that role and how you came to, to get there maybe? Uh, When I first came to Edinburgh, I was working on a project called Creative Informatics, which was part of the School of Art, but that's coming to an end now. Um, So I applied for a Chancellor's Fellowship, which is basically a research fellowship that you get to do your own stuff mostly for five years, do a little bit of teaching and just kind of grow your research project. So I was very, very lucky to get one of them. And I've been here about a year now. Well, and the reason that I particularly wanted to have a conversation with you was about your work, with particular reference to the internet and data. And my eye was caught by your blog and by your comments around your PhD and the researches that you've done and the the project you you started off that was called, I think, poem.py. So maybe we could have a a chat about that in a a minute. But would you like to maybe contextualise it a little bit by saying how you came to be interested in art, technology, the internet and some of the dynamics around that maybe. Okay this is a very convoluted and strange route that brought me here. So I used to be a police officer in London uh, for 15 years and uh, took a career break to do a PhD and my PhD I wanted to do around military spaces. Um, So I was in the reserves and served in Iraq and came back and was really interested in representations of the military in the in the home environment and while I was doing my English masters I started reading a lot of the human geography literature so I approached a human geography professor at Royal Holloway and then this new doctoral training centre for cybersecurity started at Royal Holloway and Oxford and it was a kind of government GCHQ type funded thing so we had this big discussion he thought maybe if I kind of mould my proposal about military spaces and think about digital military spaces or kind of cyber soldier spaces, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so I did and I got the I got the PhD. So I was so I was supervised by Pete in AD in the geography department, but funded by the cybersecurity um, department. So in, technically I've got a PhD in cybersecurity and geopolitics. Wow. <laughs> but so I started off a PhD doing a, a military geographies PhD basically that had links to cyber. And it was I was at a briefing at RUSI, which is the Royal United Services Institute in London, and it was about how uh, military operations can be put at risk by people putting stuff on social media. They were talking about how the families and the friends of of military personnel might leak information accidentally by saying, "Oh, you know, Peter's in, you know, he's he's off to Afghanistan tomorrow." Th- you know, this kind of thing. But they were taught, it was in Rusi and it's a very kind of fusty old building, you know, the, the library and it's all very, you know, masculine and crusty. And um, they weren't saying friends and family, they were using the phrase wives and girlfriends when they were talking about this, the, these problematic people who were leaking this information and, you know, causing massive national security risks. Not, I mean, on, an, on another level, they weren't even talking about the fact that the soldiers had given the information in the first place but anyway not even thinking about that what caught my attention is this wives and girlfriends thing because of the wags sure. baggage and the footballers wives 
and because it was misgendering, you know, there's more and more women in the in the armed forces now, you know, or, you know, people don't necessarily have binary relationships, this kind of thing. It was just, it was really problematic and it really annoyed me. Also, having been a, you know, a soldier myself and having served, it, I was really annoyed by it. And I didn't have much confidence back in those days. I wasn't the kind of person that would put my hand up and demand to know why they were using the phrase. I just kind of sat and fumed at the back of this library. But afterwards I went, I thought, I'll, I'll look it up. And they ran a blog at Royal Holloway and my supervisor said, well, if it annoys you, research it, write about it, do a blog about it. So I thought, all right, I will. <laughs> so I went to Google and I typed wives and girlfriends sexist into Google and just hit send. And the results came back and I screenshotted it and I used it in all my talks, the results, because it was 2014. And basically Google changed the word sexist, sexiest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the results that came were kind of you know, the hottest, sexiest footballers' wives. And it didn't say, did you mean sexiest? It just automatically changed it. And I was like, how can this happen? And I was absolutely uh, outraged. Double, double down on it. Absolutely outraged by how this could happen. Then I started thinking, well, if that happens, what other words or context or whatever get changed or corrected supposedly or you know how does this work what and what huge because google's so influential like what massive impact that has that changing of word or context um so i got a bit obsessed with this idea and i did i did loads of reading and um came across this idea of linguistic capitalism the idea of linguistic capitalism as, as relates to google came from an article by a scholar called Frederick Kaplan. Specifically, he pointed out how each word that you put in the search engine is monetized and how it is like a stock market and goes it goes up and down because advertisers are bidding on these words to try and win them, to win your attention. And I was just absolutely fascinated by the fact that Google has earned its money and its influence through selling something it doesn't own. But but what I suppose fascinated me more is that my academic background was in English, so it's words and language is something that I've always really cared about. But the idea that the word that you put in the search engine might not be the word that comes out of it, if that makes any sense. I thought, this is just fascinating, and I just wanted to know more and more about it. And we had this open day, and we were told we had to make a poster. So I had the idea of using the words to show what was happening to them. So I thought, well, I wondered what would happen if I put a poem through the Google Keyword Planner, which gives these estimated bid prices. So if you're an advertiser, you can go on the Keyword Planner and it'll show you roughly what price to bid at at that day, at that geographical place. So each of the words that you use for a search topic is valuable from an advertising point of view because that means that somebody might want to sell their website or put it at the top of the search list That's accordingly. It. And the more valuable the word because of because of its value in terms of selling goods and commodities, the more people will bid for it. Yes. So I didn't know what poem to put on this poster. Going back to this is a good way to explain it. What um, poem to put on a poster that would people would look at. And I started off with one of my own favourite poems that no one knew. And my my cybersecurity supervisor suggested using something really obvious, like I wandered lonely as a cloud. So I did, and I put that through, and the word cloud had loads of value. And I was like, this is really, why Why is this? Why is, why is why the is word cloud? cloud? Yeah. So valuable. And of course, it's because of cloud computing. 
that the context, so even if you go to Google and you, you type in cloud thinking of Wordsworth cloud, the results, like the, even the organic results, come back as related to cloud computing. So there's some kind of like value being put on them. It's taken away your, your control of the context. It's like an intentional fallacy of, of what, you know, of, of what comes out of the search engine. And I wondered lonely as a cloud that Daffodil's poem has the words host and crowd in as well, which are always really high in value because of web hosting, crowdfunding, you know, this type of thing. So the whole, it's the whole, it's not a database, but the whole kind of, you know, ecosystem is, is kind of tainted by these logics. And it's not just Google providing the world's information, like whatever its slogan it's was. It's kind of filtered through this yeah. kind of this kind of lens of of, uh, of, of ulterior motives or yes. different different agendas. Yes, and which is really dangerous when you think about how you know how much we rely on what comes out of Google. So this is what really fascinates me is this this idea that um, or trying to trying to expose the the workings of this the, the online ecosystem environment and and how we how we use it and how it how it's shaping us as much as you know we we think that we're kind of the active component in it but there's all this other side that's underneath it which is flipping things around and and distorting it and your idea to then take a simple poem that everybody knows, I wandered lonely as a cloud, and then monetize it, and then it, it comes out as a receipt yes. slip at the end of it. Yes, so to start with, I, well, I thought, how am I going to show, you know, how am I going to show this poem as yeah. a, a monetized poem? And I thought, well, the most obvious thing is as a receipt, you know, kind of this ultimate representation of capital exchange sort of thing. So I initially mocked up a Excel spreadsheet and look, you know, looked at a, looked at a normal receipt and just, just made it up myself and stuck it on that poster. And all the funders, they came to that open day and looked at the poster and were like, oh my God. <laughs> it went down really, really well. It was, it was really exciting how, because prior to that, people have been, you know, what's, what's Pip doing? She's like faffing around on Google all day talking about poetry. I know the feeling. <laughs> I know the feeling. And they were like, what's this got to do with information security and cybersecurity? And I was like, well, if the words, if the words that we're getting our information from that make up our information are tainted in some way, then how can you even communicate securely over the internet? So I'm like, this is absolute nuts and bolts of it. It's not cryptographic keys, but it is, you know, it's that that important. So after the, the poster, I thought, what if I could actually print out a receipt? And this was just complete trial and error because I just didn't know what I was doing really. But I had a couple of people at Royal Holloway who were who very kindly sort of lent basic coding skills and tech skills and things. But eventually got to the stage where, yeah, I was, um, I was printing them out as receipts. Oh, right. So you've just given me a copy of Daffodils by William uh, Wordsworth, Sale. And you've itemised each each word in the poem, and it comes to a grand total of twenty nine pounds sixty three. Bargain. Yep. And as you say, the the words themselves are um, very different in value. I'm trying to see which are the which are the the high value ones. Cloud, as you say, five pounds sixty seven. So if somebody clicks through on an advert with cloud. You have to pay five pounds sixty. Yeah. Well, what if that's the winning bid? It's actually, I think it's a cent below the winning bid, whatever the right. auction strategy is. But that's still that's an awful yes. lot, isn't it? Just just to get somebody but, piped. But how big is your... Google? Like this is. <laughs> this is yeah. This is why. Yeah. 
So this is fantastic. And what I really like is how you kind of, in the nicest possible way, you kind of followed your nose with all of this. You mm -hmm. kind of st it started out and it's kind of morphed and it's kind of, and you've ended up with this project where now you're looking at the the linguistic value of, of the internet and Google and, and all of these things. Um, and it's become this really fascinating project that is, that you're still working on to this day, aren't yes, you? Yes, it keeps growing legs and things. Because <laughs> <laughs> after after I started doing the receipts, a few people said, "Well, this is you know they're kind of little works of art and you know, these things." So I got the opportunity to exhibit at a gallery in East London, and um, what it meant is that I had now had this kind of tagline, this kind of conceptual tagline that these words are being kind of bastardized and they're being ripped apart, and they're being you know monetized for the wrong context for the evil capitalist context and what I'm doing here is I'm saying no these words are beautiful in themselves even if they've been monetized I can return them to art so I'm reclaiming language from the algorithmic market and I'm returning it to art literally put on the wall but then I'm thinking well I've actually trapped these poor words behind the glass at that value so maybe I've been that's an act of violence in itself to kind of trap them once I'd done that gallery exhibition at the Mile End um, Art Centre, that's when things took off. Because there was um, somebody from the Open Data Institute was at the, at the gallery and they were having an exhibition. She said, we want, we want your stuff, bring it. And it kind of, and then Wired, there was a Wired journalist there who, who got it immediately, which I was delighted at, but some people don't. And she just got it and wrote this lovely article about it. And it kind of, kind of went from there. Fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and then I got the job up here, and I got the chance in 2019 to do a thing at the festival, so the last festival that happened properly. And that's when the stock market ticker tape idea came along, because I had this chance to um, to show in the windows of the InSpace Gallery, which is on Potter Row in, um, in Edinburgh, and they're massive, massive, great big long windows. And we projected from the inside onto the window so that you could see the stuff from outside. And it's a, a local tech company here who are brilliant. I work with them all the time called Ray Interactive who, who set all this up. And um, we thought because it's not going up and down like a receipt, we had this canvas that was going kind of long lengthways. And so we thought, well, what about you know, the other symbol of capitalist exchange, <laughs> which is the stock market, which is a fantastic way of really showing the fluctuation in real time it was hooked up to google so that um the text running through it you know it had little green and red arrows showing like on the monday winston had gone up a penny or gone down or, or what have you and it ran so this was for george orwell's 1984 yes. i was always fascinated by newspeak in 1984 especially the appendix where orwell you know spends a lot of time describing what he imagines newspeak is and it was wonderful and it was about, you know, it describes Newspeak as being this language which you can only use for one context, one purpose. It has to be the context of the party along, you know, the political line. And he actually says you cannot use Newspeak for poetic or philosophical purposes. And it's all about cutting down um, synonyms and, and uh, you know, and he's, going, he's saying, well, why, what's the point of having 10 words for one thing? Let's just, let's decimate them. Let's just get rid of all these words and... And it, it just fascinated me and I was thinking, well, this is exactly what I'm meaning about the whole context thing about Google, in that you're, it's out of your control. You could only, these words can only be manifested in one context and it's that, it's that control. So we went quite ambitious and monetized the whole of George Orwell's 1984, which came out as £73,000. 
and it scrolled live with the words going up and down on and off throughout the festival. I've seen the still images and it, and it is, it's like these uh, feeds where, you know, like on the financial news that runs along yeah. the bottom and it's constantly updating you with all these numbers, which to the untrained eye, these are just all these numbers and you can see that they're, to some people they make sense, they're trading and so on. And for, for yours, you've got all the words of 1984 being scrolling across, but also with, as you say, the arrows mm. to say whether they're in real time, whether they're going up or down, whether they're trading up, trading down. and you know they're losing anchor as a literary context and becoming these items of exchange commodities yes exactly and how was that received i bet it was great to see it i'd have loved to have seen it 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 was really good but it the projections you could only see in the dark did you find a way to get around that or to deal with that well after the festival i started thinking about how to how to get around that was also the projections aren't portable as well so it was it was like a once only thing and um, I was chatting with um, the guys from Ray Interactive who, who helped me with the tech and one of them said I think um, I think Chris who does lighting and kind of stuff has got some old LED panels somewhere hidden away that he doesn't use anymore so I approached him and it turned out he had these two 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 meter long LED strips so four meters wide of LED panels that he wasn't doing anything with and I was like please can I use them so the, the first iteration that the, that we used the panels for was actually the one at Waverley Mall and um, it was in the the fruit market galleries temporary bookshop that they had in Waverley Mall at, at Waverley Station while the, the fruit market gallery was getting um, upgraded and um, Ian Morrison who's one of the curators there had seen my stuff and wanted to speak so I went to speak to him and he said, do you think you can do anything like in this space? And I went, well, I've just got these amazing LED panels. And they have, their book market had um, like an internal window that looked out into the mall. And I, was, <laughs> I said, that is just the most brilliant space for these panels. And then we thought, well, what text do we put through? And um, we're both massive fans of Walter Benjamin. And we were just sat there chatting about how we liked the, the idea of the old arcades and the generation of capital and all the, all this kind of stuff. And then we're like, well this is obvious. We'll we'll use you know Walter Benjamin's arcades project and we'll put it we'll put it through the panel. So you get this kind of juxtaposition of people how you walk physically walk through a shopping mall and you kind of move capital around with you. Like you see something, you know, and and how in a digital space that kind of happens too when you click and like and, and stuff like that. So it was this kind of updating of the Benjamin you know Parisian arcades but again interestingly enough I don't think anyone would have known what the critique was right apart from the people that had been at the launch or who I spoke to so again it was quite frustrating that people thought oh <laughs> look at that it looks shiny and but didn't and it was great because it was hanging right above you know a super dry shop which had its neon sign so it was all very ironic <laughs> but in terms of impact and again this is what I've written about you know I have to be I have to be honest with myself in terms of impact and actually letting people know what's going on it's limited in terms of aesthetics yes people think oh this is good but I don't think they knew why it's all very well to, to show the art but the, the where you're showing it really makes a difference like if, it, if you're showing it from the university building is that just is it going to be used for marketing is it going to get re-enrolled into the the kind of economics and it was amazing how quickly the Waverley Mall people got onto me saying, can they make a film? or Can they do a video, like, bigging up the mall? It's got this artwork in it. And I thought, again, it's been 
co-opted it's been recouped into the system where you know that it, that it was trying to kind of challenge and so there's limited value in it unless you can you've got the opportunity to really explain it to people but some people go oh yeah this looks you know looks quite pretty you know oh look it's all well and, and so I find that the little workshops and the talks that I do answer that research question ironically a lot better than the exhibitions however I hope that particularly the one at the at the festival this year at the the storytelling centre I think that is going to be possibly the best venue I could have found for them um, because what we're doing is we're we're integrating their program with the texts that go through so they've got a, an adaptation of Macbeth and they've got an adaptation of The Ugly Duckling in their theatre and um, they've got a Burns night so I've, so we're running you know texts that are to do with Scotland and to do with their program so that and again I suppose I'm, I'm playing into their whole advertising strategy because they can say on social media oh this is what we're running through the panels today come and have a cup of coffee in the in the cafe but it seems somehow more wholesome being at a storytelling center if that makes sense I don't feel quite so compromised by it I'm delighted in the in the way in which this kind of kernel of this idea has just grown and just developed a momentum of its own and but also the way you're continuing to develop it and to move it forward and to explore some of these ideas about how it works and why it works and where it works best and sometimes even why it doesn't work or you feel maybe it's not not making the point and um, well maybe we can pursue some of these uh, ideas after a cup of tea. Good idea. Perfect. So we are back after cup of tea for me and cappuccino for Flat you. Flat white. Flat white with Peruvian coffee beans. Very good, thank you. <laughs> and oh well, I paid for them, so no, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been talking in in the break about all sorts of things, haven't we? And uh, had a really good conversation, put the worlds to rights. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you more about was you were mentioning about how during lockdown how we migrated online and and the consequences of that for data and so on would you just like to say a little bit about what you ended up doing yes I'd always had a policy that uh, I didn't want to put this project online because I didn't want it to be remonetized basically so it's, you can't find much of it online actual content I didn't want to do a website that these poems are on and things like that and all the talks that I gave pre-pandemic I'd always opt out of them being recorded because I didn't want to be on YouTube as it's owned by Google and this kind of thing and so there was always an option before pandemic of being in person and doing your exhibition in person or doing the talk in person and this is interesting in terms of the kind of democratization of arts and obviously it's more democratic when it is online however my privacy worries are kind of in com in conflict with that because when the pandemic started and um, I went I had a, a bit of a, like many people, a bit of a kind of emotional dip at the beginning because there was, everything's got cancelled. I was desperate for the pandemic not to be the thing that changed everything forever and made it okay for everything to be recorded and everything to be streamed and everything to be online. I didn't want that, to be, to people just to kind of zombie walk into that era where you're really weird if you want to do things in person. <laughs> Although, as I said, that's 
the fact that a lot of things are online now does make things more inclusive. So we were talking before about what medium does have the most productive impact on the public. And a website arguably would be that canvas. You know, it wouldn't be a, a projection in Potterow in Edinburgh or an LED panel in a shopping mall. It, it would be a website where people could play around and put their own poems in and stuff like that. But I've never wanted to do that. Long story short, beginning of the pandemic, when people just expected everyone to switch to online and for things to be recorded and stopped asking permission to be recorded, I really wanted to kind of critically push back on that. So along with um, some colleagues, we applied for some funding from the Human Data Interaction Network for a project called Zoom Obscura, which was very much a kind of, um, you know, a play on the camera obscura and we wanted to commission artists to think of interventions into how to exist and communicate in these online spaces, but retaining some agency over your own data. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was only a really tiny amount of money. Like, it wasn't massively funded at all, but we got so much out of it and recruited these seven wonderful artists who were all very different in the way they approached and played with things. Some, one of them produced a script that you, you had an emoji face to show your emotion rather than, you know, your face. Another one really fascinating and intricate was playing with the idea of time lag and how Zoom calls had played with this um, timings and, and who goes in turn taking and, and how it's changed the way we interact with people because you can't speak over someone online and you know really interesting and another one Martin Disley had produced an avatar that was like your face enough so that people recognize it but the pixels were so different that a computer couldn't match it to your face elsewhere on the internet. So you retain the anonymity, but you're still present in that space. And it was an avatar that you could use on Zoom calls. And I used it as when we presented the this project. We did a big launch event and I didn't want my face to be on it. So I, I did the avatar version of it, which I had people saying, oh, that, that looks like Pip, but it's not Pip. <laughs> I've forgotten what Pip looks like. <laughs> but it's so many interesting things came out of it, not least that the avatar actually makes you younger and it gives you nice eyebrows and it makes, you know, but that's fascinating because it's working on a database of faces. And of course, again, we're talking, you know, we're talking about databases of text and that, but it's the same with databases of faces. If you're doing an amalgamated face and all the models are nicely groomed, you know, you're going to come. <laughs> so it was um, very, very interesting. And then one, oh, sorry, just one more, which I think was probably my favourite, was um, a piece called For Ruth and Violette that Paul O'Neill in Dublin did. And what he did, he played with the naming function underneath the Zoom box. You know, you can change your name or, or whatever, but he, he used it to send messages. And so he used the poem, The Life That I Have, which was a World War II code poem. One of the poems that were, was given to operatives to help them remember and decipher code and that. And it had been written by Leo Marx in the Second World War, and it was given to... Um, he wrote it after his fiance died and he gave it to a special agent operative called Violette, Violette Zabo. So he wrote this wonderful poem and gave it to the operative and she ended up being killed by, by the Nazis. So what Paul has done, he's kind of, he's adopted that kind of cipher, that code technique by using the, the box. So he's got these two Zoom boxes talking to each other with each line of the poem, almost like kind of balletic the life that I have is the life that I have, you know, oh, it's just absolutely beautiful piece of work. 
and yeah, just playing with the different levels of um, obfuscation and kind of secret how how to communicate without doing it in the way that Zoom wants you to do it, where it wants all your data. But it's fascinating the problems around being present and being participatory mm. and the costs involved or the or the trade-off and, and, and it's becoming just so frustratingly difficult to retain a sense of autonomy you know in the face of it all and, and you know I spend so much time when it when it says you know accept all and I kind of go through trying to object to all and you can spend a long time doing that or you want you end up giving up it's just really frustrating that that dynamic is not it's either not clear or it's just not possible to do it on terms that you feel comfortable okay. with and it is if you're especially a person like me who gets like no will try anything to try and resist these forces it gets quite exhausting not least trying to explain to yet another person why you don't want to be on youtube or what you know why you're appearing as an avatar or the other thing that i took up in lockdown was um playing with lego <laughs> i don't know we all had a lot of time on our hands um but what i do is i i create Lego talk so people would say can you send a recorded talking and instead of just doing a talking head I do a little Lego character and I use an old iPhone to have like my slides running in the background and then the Lego figure would have the pointer and the pointer <laughs> so, and I did little captions so I didn't even have the voice so I literally was able to present my work but I wasn't giving my facial or my voice data at the same time but my God, that was exhausting. Like I spent so many whole night sessions doing that because obviously it's stop frame photography. You know, yes, it takes a lot of time, and especially when you're not an expert in. in you know. Well, you were talking about the context of showing the artwork and being. Um, it wasn't enough for you that you get a visual hit from it. You want to be able to contextualize the message or the the position that's being taken with it uh, as well and talking a little bit around that and it seems as though these acts of resistance that you were engaged in and others around Zoom and, and the relinquishing of your online presence and data is another opportunity then because you're almost forced to explain yourself well why on earth won't you show your face or why are you messing around with Lego or all of these things did you find it as a constructive way to have these conversations or was it just a quite a drain that okay I've got to explain myself again when I did the Lego thing I think the times that I did it it went down really well and you know it, it worked when I explained why it really did work but yeah without that the offer of the visual thing that they'd asked me for like i.e my face or, or whatever without the alternative offer then people would get quite frustrated and it is, it is exhausting being the, the awkward one, like on a panel, the only one that doesn't want to be recorded. Because then, of course, what do you do if the other people do want to be recorded and stuff like that? And you have to be quite... Um, people just just don't get it. They'll say, oh, we'll record you and then we'll delete it. And I'll say, no, that's not the point. <laughs> so, and I think most people reluctantly kind of accept that they're not going to win this game and they kind of okay and they kind of go ahead anyway and and so I'm intrigued by your degree of resistance that you'll you'll go to and what do you think drives that is it just uh, I can say is it just a matter of principle I don't mean it like that I mean what would you say is the key reason why you're you're so you're so insistent on on the position that you're taking I think it's stubbornness <laughs> to be honest I think it's it's also a little bit of a throwback to when I was in the police and I had that insight into 
how powerless people are in the face of you know structural authority and how at the end of my time in the police I I started to yeah I started to realize just how how bad things were <laughs> so there were things like um I did financial investigation for a while and things like credit records and credit scores and I could see inside how all that worked and I could see how it worked against people that had the same name for example and things like that and how difficult it was for people to say no that's not that wasn't my credit card you know John Joe Smith or whatever and how impossible it is to kind of backtrack and expunge or make right your criminal record or your credit score or something if something's gone structurally wrong and I could really see that so I think it's partly that the kind of I want to retain the power over what I give I suppose to put it quite uh-huh. yeah. Mm, yeah and it's always that I mean it's that it's that awful feeling when you, you feel powerless when you're trying to get through to an energy company or or any government department or tax and you can't speak to you can't you know you know what I mean and I've been on the side where I'm the person that would be answering the phone or you know perhaps had the power and so I've, so I've been on both sides and I don't I don't want to succumb and be the person that just rolls over and it's going to make things difficult stay with the trouble is what people say <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, that's good, and that's it, and it, and it's necessary work, as it were, or necessary resistance. And and I'm aware that there are conversations around trying to reform, as it were, the internet, or to try and redress that balance. Are you involved in any of that, or are you are you optimistic for the direction of travel and how these things might play out um, in the future? I'm not optimistic at all. The things I don't have any answers apart from making people more aware I suppose is what all this is about I'm not going to go to Google and say stop monetizing the search engine because that's how they operate it's these structural systems of digital capitalism that are propping up communication information media and without getting too sort of politically polemic about it unless that is addressed unless the monetization of data itself is addressed whether it's linguistic or audio or biometric or what have you until that stops being valuable we will always have these problems so no I'm not optimistic I suppose what I do and why I'm so stubborn about it is that I just want more and more people to just be more aware I'm not saying don't click on adverts I'm not saying don't you know do whatever it's just that if you've seen this and you realize what happens when you put a word into the internet with that knowledge you're going to interpret the results with a bit more of a pinch of salt than you would have before so that's all I can do, really. I mean, what you are doing is fantastic in terms of making people aware, as you say, and your own, these own little, little acts of resistance, so, uh, having these conversations, raising the awareness and getting people talking about it. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. And thank you. Thank you so much for sharing it with me and telling me all about what you've been up to. Oh, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. No problem. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. 
and check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon. Thank you.